Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. In a minute, I'm going to talk to Moshe Wininu. He is a former network news producer who's trying to make his own thing um, on Instagram and other social platforms, his own news show. It's called Mo News. Get it? Um, I'm always really fascinated with people trying to build new media companies on social platforms like Instagram. We've also got a special treat. I'm going to reunite with my friend and former co-worker Jason Del Rey. He's a guy who knows every nook and cranny at Amazon. He has turned that knowledge into a new book. It's called Winner Sells All. It's about the long-running fight between Amazon and Walmart for your wallet. You will like that book. You will like our conversation. And that's coming up after I talk to Moshe Wininu, which is going to happen right now. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. I am live in the studio with Moshe Wininu, who is the founder. Are you a CEO as well? It's kind of sure. a one-man operation, four-person yes. operation. Uh, we're gradually expanding, expanding. but uh, it, it was a solo operation for a bit here. The founder of Mo News, and, and Mo is gonna, Moshe is going to explain what that is right now. So what it is, and it's, it's interesting because this has evolved, because Peter, this started as a exercise in boredom during the height of the pandemic, yeah. where I started to break down headlines and news on Instagram for friends and family. You are a, you are a longtime veteran of, of news. You were most recently at CBS News, uh, yes. producing the, the evening news there. Yeah, yeah. so I spent years at Fox, at Bloomberg, at CBS. I had started to consult uh, and figure out my next steps. I, I In 2019, I left and said, I need to take a break from news. Well, lo and behold, nine months later, a global pandemic hits. I'm on the couch, quarantined like everybody else. And my only way to process the information is to report out and uh, chose Instagram as a way to communicate with friends and family at the time. And so it would go on for days and then weeks and then months. And the audience would expand from hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands. And this I could, is you posting on Instagram. Here's what's going on. I'm watching Fauci, so you don't have to. I'm watching Trump, so you don't have to. I'm watching Cuomo, so you don't have to. Uh, here are some interesting, here's interesting data coming out of England right now, out of South Africa. So started to break down COVID headlines for friends and family who had difficulty, we all did, processing what exactly was happening and what was next and what we could rely on. And so what I quickly fell into was uh, social first news. Uh, bringing people, uh, aggregating key information, bringing original analysis, gradually bringing on guests to report the news on initially COVID and then everything happening in the world. And initially did it for friends and family. And then my wife said to me, like, listen, this could be useful out there. It's like, really? And we opened up the account and suddenly the people start streaming in. And so there's Instagram. Now there's a podcast and a newsletter, but it's kind of Instagram first. You are the second person I've had in the studio explaining how they left TV news and, and tried to create uh, uh, an Instagram news distribution business. Uh, Jessica Yellen uh, right. is still doing it, I believe. Um, and I'm really fascinated with anyone trying to create a business on Instagram. Um, so I want to talk to you about how that works. and 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 But I also want to hear you've got a critique of the news which says news is broken. I'm going to fix it. We're all going to fix it, but I'm going to help you fix it. Whenever I hear that, my 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 shoulders go up because I'm like, mm, is this one of those people who says that the news is biased on both sides? But and we're going to give you centrist news, but really what that means is, you know, it's 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 kind of both siding the news. But I don't think that's what you're saying. No, I and I think we can take politics out of it. I think when I say the news is broken. Uh, what I'm saying is that it's not responsive to the audience, right? Like I came from a place and they're still doing it uh, where I said, you got to watch every night at 630, got to yep. sit through the commercials. Um, and it, whether it's the platform, whether it's the type of coverage that you're getting, um, whether it's the constant urgency and the clickbait, I mean, we could go and Peter, you've done a 
you know, uh, hundreds of episodes on this, all the variety of critiques we could have of news. Mm -hmm. And sure, you know, we could talk about politics, but I think writ large, what I hear from people, and I didn't really fully grasp it until I left CBS and left mainstream news, was just the complete distrust people have for the media. And and it's not always directly related to pol politics and political coverage. Yeah. So that's when I hear distrust, I go, oh, that's, that's, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah. So, and so, well, you know, you got, you got uh, Fox News on the right and you got the New York Times on the left. And you go, no, 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 the New York Times, yes, it's people who work there are, are liberal, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. It's more likely to present a liberal viewpoint, but the, they strive very hard to go sort of right down the middle. Same thing for the Wall Street Journal. And so it seems like very often people are describing a, a fucked up media landscape, but the people who are screwing it up are much more likely to come from one ideological pole than the other. Sure, but you could also say, I mean, I think there are some legitimate critiques for the quote-unquote mainstream media, mm -hmm. um, for the way CNN covers things, for the way the New York Times covers things. Um, I think we could have a legitimate discussion. And again, I'm not here both sides uh -huh. uh, and not saying there's um, equal blame to go around. But at the same time, I think, you know, one of the issues that media has is the lack of connection to the audience, the out-of-touchness. I mean, we're sitting here in Manhattan having this conversation. And we know this, we can admit this, that like the vast majority of journalists for these national organizations are living in New York and D.C. And and I think that's been um, a challenge for media organizations for a while. We certainly experienced it at CBS, you know, not yes, yeah, A snowstorm in Manhattan or a heavy rain in Manhattan becomes national news. Well, and it would it, drive me nuts when I was in the Midwest. Like, really? You guys haven't seen snow before? Well, even most recently, whether it's the, the, the smoke from the Canadian fires, mm -hmm. right? The West is saying, you know, we've had a few summers of this, but suddenly it hits you media types in New York yeah. and it's the end of the world. Oh, my God, what is happening? You're like, well, have you been to Seattle or, you know, anywhere out West for the past couple summers? The West has been experiencing it. So when we talk about broken media, when we talk about biases, we're talking about geographic biases, we're talking about income biases, we're talking about uh, uh, educational biases, right? Because the majority of folks in the media, you know, many went to private, you know, universities and they're not connected to necessarily um, the experiences, the challenges of uh, the people out there, and then it translates to coverage. So, um, give me, give me, a, a, give me a day in the life of, of Mo News. How do you decide what you're going to cover? We're recording this on Wednesday, June twenty first. So, I assume you're going to do a submarine story. Oh yeah, because um, everyone's doing the submarine. But how are you figuring out what you're going to cover and and what? Again, you're a one to four person operation. So you're not on this. You're not going out and sourcing the stuff yourself. You're getting it from other news organizations. How do you figure out what you want to cover if you're covering one story a day, and what your news diet is going to be that's going to inform that? Well, it, it, I should say uh, we are getting stuff from other news news organizations, but I've also been in touch with a friend in the Coast Guard, mm -hmm. uh, somebody that I know that works in the submarine industry. So we are gathering uh, original information and facts. So there's a variety of ways that we get information and make our news decisions. One is, okay, what's out there, right? There's a variety of morning newsletters and podcasts, et cetera, that we're listening to. So those are those sources. Beyond that, I think what is key to what we're doing over at the Mo News Instagram account is I'm also getting constant feedback from the audience. And it's something that didn't really do in my previous roles at the networks where I'm hearing directly from the um, audience, what are you interested in? What questions are you asking today? And in some cases, the question is easily answerable. And in some cases, we might get a dozen questions that no one's answered, that the average person out there is really curious about. You know, one of the questions that came about in the last 24 hours while we discussed this submarine story, who's paying for the search for these billionaires? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm calling the Coast Guard and I'm like, how does this work? And they're like, the Coast Guard does its thing. We don't ask for reimbursement. And so that's leading to a whole discussion out there like, well, these billionaires at some point, should we bill them for this uh, for the search operation? Then I'm seeing a, you know, a bubbling up as we speak this morning of a bunch of people who are like, where was all this coverage of the migrant ship uh, off of Greece? Hundreds of people lost their lives. And so it's very interesting to see the narratives out there and the conversations that are happening, bubbling up in a way through the direct messages on Instagram that might have taken hours or frankly days or weeks to reach us at the traditional yeah. media headquarters. The submarine reminds me of the the old cable staple of the kid falling down the well. Oh yeah, and or balloon boy. Balloon boy yeah. more often. And there's that weird thing where like, on the one hand, it's not the most important story in the world. On the other hand, it's gripping. Yeah. Um, on the third hand, 
yes, we often don't cover stuff that happens outside our borders and we write about people that either look like us or we think look like us or sure. our audience. Um, there's no comfortable way to sort of parse that really. No, but you know, I think what people are looking for is a conversation. And that's something I'm trying to do for my years in the media is explain, break down those barriers. You know, the number of questions I got for the people who watched like Succession who were like, wait, how does decision night work at a network? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they saw the the HBO version of that. They saw the succession version of that. Well, how does how do you make those decisions? And so being able to bring down that fourth wall to people, I think, is an important part of what we do and and makes what we do unique. And and being willing to have the open conversations where we can, you know, I can fully self-critique what we're doing in the media. And so this is one a day. One story a day on, on Instagram? No, no. Uh, we're, we're doing, so we, we use Instagram stories, which is like the last chronological yeah. aspect of social media that's not algorithmic. We might do anywhere from 30 to 60 okay. stories, um, individual stories. They might cover anywhere from a dozen to two dozen news um, issues, and that's happening throughout the day. That makes more sense. Um, and then, you know, you said, you know, you're, you're digital, you're reaching the audience, as you know, because you were in TV news for a long time. It's not like the TV, the linear channels are unaware of digital. Right. And they've got conflicts, right? Because they, they, you know, they know their audience is declining. They know there's an audience on digital they want to reach. They're trying to figure out how to do both at the same time. But it's, it's not like they're ignoring. They all have Instagram accounts. They all have TikTok accounts, et cetera. They're all taking what they put on air and, and, and putting it on digital as well. So how do you think your audience is finding you and what are you giving them on Instagram that they couldn't get from ABC, CBS, et cetera? Well, I, I think, and this is something, you know, uh, I realize in retrospect of my time at, at CBS, um, helping launch the streaming channel there and working on digital strategy there. There's a tendency in the traditional media to replicate what you're doing on these platforms. Mm -hmm. Like literally, let's cut it yep. and place it over there. Where these platforms really require you to uh, make a new thing, make a new thing, make a thing that makes sense for that platform, makes sense for TikTok, makes sense for Instagram, um, and you know, and that's a challenge. And I still see major news organizations with way more resources than what I have um, still kind of mailing it in when it comes to digital strategy. Um, and so I think that's where what we try to do is be original to the platform, be um, genuine to how people are consuming content on that platform, uh, be conversational, you know, use video, use text, and do it in a way that feels organic there, uh, feels responsive. Because I think also one of the tendencies in traditional media is to throw it up on social media, that social media is a one-way street. Mm -hmm. It's a way for us to promote our content. Whereas I think, you know, if we're utilizing social media well, it is a direct line into your consumers, into your fans, into um, the audience out there, as opposed to what we typically do when I was sitting in the editorial meetings at CBS and other places where like, we're going to put this up on TV today and uh, we think people are going to like it because we think it's interesting. We've mentioned TikTok a few times. You've got a TikTok account. It doesn't look like it's a, it's a significant focus for you. Not yet. I think that, you know, as a media startup, you kind of need to pick a couple platforms that you can do well because mm -hmm. I can't do them all well. So Instagram was first. Um, and then we started to uh, build out podcasts and newsletter because also we're a media startup that needs to monetize at some point. And that is where there's a more developed advertising. So you thought that through. We think we can make money on Instagram before we can make it on TikTok. Um, well, in, back up. When I started Instagram, TikTok was not a relevant thing mm -hmm. for media institutions. I mean, it's only three years ago, but that's kind of where yep. we're at. I went to Instagram because that's where I was talking to friends and family. I didn't go to Instagram because I was like, I'm going to monetize this one day. It's March 2020, and I'm like, how do I communicate with my, with my nearest and dearest? Twitter's a mess. Uh, it's nasty. Instagram feels like a friendlier place to do this. And you saw an evolution in 2020, where suddenly Instagram became a place where uh, you didn't just share your brunch anymore. You were having serious conversations in 2020 about COVID, about Black Lives Matter, and then suddenly the news blew up on Instagram. So a timing worked out there. As far as monetization, then I'm a year in, I'm like, oh, this is a serious thing. I think we can build this out. How do we monetize on Instagram? We'll work on that. In the meantime, where are the more developed ecosystems? Newsletter and podcast. And so are those bringing in money now? Yes. Good for you. Uh, covering your nut? Um, so far. Like we're, I'm, I'm bootstrapping this. I mm -hmm. haven't taken any outside uh, funding yet. Uh, we actually just in the past uh, 
month and a half launch a subscription platform for Mo News, what we call Mo News Premium. And we uh, are about to reach a couple thousand people who have now signed up for their monthly or annual subscription for additional content on podcast and Instagram. So who's, who's your hardcore consumer that's paying you, Moshe, yeah. um, to explain the news to them? It really ranges. Um, I think that if I look at my uh, audience right now on Instagram, it's overwhelmingly female, median ages in their early 30s. Uh, vast majority of them are parents. And that is where we found kind of that initial consumer on Instagram. Uh, it's replicated itself also on on the podcast and newsletter. and But geographically, it's across the country. Um, it's uh, when you look at professionally, it's a variety, I mean, of, of people. I'll put up a story, Peter, about Chinese uh, purchases of agricultural land in North Dakota. And I'll hear from someone within a few minutes who's like, oh, I have a farm in North Dakota. This is mm -hmm. what's happening. At the same time, I'll put up a story of me in Manhattan and hear from somebody like, oh, I work at that. We work at 85 Broad Street, like uh, working on a working at a tech company. And so we have a wide variety. I think the appetite for reliable news, to hear news from a friend, to hear it explained in a straightforward way uh, with full transparency uh, runs across the board. Are you allowing yourself to either daydream or maybe even more practically strategize about, all right, as we grow, here's what the brand looks like. Um, I think about a lot of people I've talked to who've done some version of explain the news, by the way, that's what Fox does professionally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're going to explain the news to you in a tone that makes sense to you, the, the skim or morning brew and and they can they can get an audience and then they sort of bump their heads i mean that'd be a, it'd be a high quality problem for you to get to their size yeah. but eventually they sort of tap out and say all right there's there's a there's a finite audience for people who want the news delivered this way and they won't really say this out loud but most people just don't want the news um so how are you thinking about that first of all i'd love to be i'd love to have You'd the love problems problem, yeah. i'd love to have the problems of the, the skim and morning brew to hit several million mm -hmm. daily users and then figure out what my next challenge is going to be i think right now the stage we're at peter is okay we figured out how to do instagram well well how can we continue to grow that how can i continue to grow the newsletter and podcast audience and having that as sort of the three the, the troika if you will then i understand that we can monetize video better on youtube so we start to build up the youtube audience it's sort of like stage four here TikTok remains to be seen. I mean, we've all been following the headlines of TikTok. I, I think the challenge right now still, and by the way, I'll say this for Instagram too, is as a creator monetizing that if you're not doing lifestyle content. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you come to Mo News on an average day, you might get the submarine, but you also might get coverage of, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. You might also get coverage of the latest on abortion laws. Not necessarily the, the most attractive thing to a number of advertisers, right? So monetizing there is a, as an independent creator is a challenge. And so I think that, you know, what we'll have to figure out, and I think what a lot of creators I'm, I'm getting from them is how to own your audience. And that's one of the reasons that well, we've built out a website and we're building out a newsletter and, uh, and own, podcast. Own your audience right means have a platform that you control that they come to. Correct. As opposed to being dependent on the algorithms and the whims of an Instagram or TikTok. Exactly. I mean, we've all witnessed over the course of the last decade, including during my time at CBS, you know, on any given day, Facebook changes the algorithm and suddenly, you know, your traffic is cut mm -hmm. by half. And who is your audience? Who are the people who love, you know, who are fans of you and come to you every day? So when we talk about owning your audience, it's like, how do I ensure that I can in a future of 2025 or 2027 or the year 2030 communicate with you? should Instagram go in a different direction. Can we talk about clickbait for a minute because it's it's usually derogatory, but sometimes I think, you know, I work with a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to get people to click on an article. Yeah. And the idea is, is click the bad version of clickbait is the original version of clickbait was we're going to give you a headline or something that seems salacious or whatever and you're not going to get what we what we promised. Um, as opposed to, you know, again, people I work with, lots of people are, are thinking about how can we package this and present this to you in a way that engages with you and gets you to read the article where we will deliver on that promise. And I think about, you know, TV news and, and Instagram and TikTok. A lot of that is reliant on a, sal a salacious image or crazy footage of um, when, when I saw the uh, when the Philadelphia bridge collapsed. Right. There's a great TikTok video of someone like it looks like they're driving through an inferno. It's like a minute before it collapses. 
There's no context to it. It's just an amazing video. Um, but I'd watch that over and over before I'd watch uh, a press uh, a clip of Josh Shapiro talking about how they're rebuilding. Yeah. So how do you think about sort of balancing? Here's something that's amazing. You should look at it versus I'm going to soberly explain the news to you, which is what you think they want to hear. I don't know that it's an either or situation. I mean, you're describing compelling imagery mm -hmm. of the Bills of Philadelphia Bridge. You don't need to ignore that imagery. But I also don't think that um, it's fair to the audience to create a faux urgency around it or to repeat it. I mean, in in network news, I remember sitting there at 6.30 at night and we'd come up, I was running the CBS Evening News and see, okay, what, what's NBC and ABC up to? And we're watching image by image of like how they're trying to pull in the audience. I'm like, one of them just used video that I know is from three days ago, but happens to be really good mm -hmm. and is going to hook the people. There's also a tendency to like say, tonight, tonight, you know, we can go through the tactics mm -hmm. that news organizations, especially in, in on television, use to try to pull in the audience. I, I do think, though, that that becomes tiresome and exhausting for the audience, um, especially when we talk about clickbait, where you tease something and then you don't actually answer the question. Or you tease it and then tell people at the end, actually, it was nothing to worry about, mm -hmm. um, which we see on a daily basis at major organizations. And I get it. They're desperate to cling on to the audience that is left watching those platforms. I think that what we've tried to do uh, on Instagram is say, here's some video, but here's here. I'm not going to freak you out. I'm not going to use, um, you know, the end of the world type language. And I think that honestly, the COVID coverage that I saw as I sat there as an observer of the media for the first time was really frustrating and really concerning. And I saw the um, what I feel, you know, this is actually one of the fair critiques. You know, you you had um, Dylan Byers on recently mm -hmm. talking about the whole Chris Lick thing going on at CNN. And, I, you know, deep buried in that piece is his critique of CNN's COVID coverage. And I think there is everything else aside of what happened at CNN. There is fair critique of CNN and the media when it comes to COVID coverage and the idea of clickbait or fear monitoring. Yeah, they they tease that out a bit in a semaphore piece. So credit to those guys. And he was because originally it was like we, we, we sensationalized COVID, which seems crazy. Um, you know, more than more than a million Americans die. It's kind of hard to sensationalize that. In addition, at the beginning of COVID, you know, you talk about a bias, but yes, there was a bias in New York about being freaked out about COVID because there was morgue trucks, right? Right on the street. Probably you probably walked by them. So yeah, it's, it seems like that's a pretty serious news story. What Lick was talking about was saying, well, after down the line, when we sort of had normalized it a bit, they were still beating the drum too much. I think that's a hard one to get your head around, though. Though there have been comparative media analyses, Peter, mm -hmm. that showed European media and American media in terms of positive versus negative coverage. And this is not just in those initial weeks, but months out mm -hmm. from it, even upon the time of getting the vaccine. And the American media was overwhelmingly more negative about what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis versus uh, what you saw at like Stat News and some of the health news websites or frankly non-American media. And I think there's a fair critique there that, um, you know, when we're talking about clickbait or, you know, creating this sense of fear so you tune in, there's a reason now why people have lost trust in the media partially due not just to politics. And I was on the CNN Morning Show when Don Lemon was still on six months ago. And we were talking about this and he's like, well, it has to do with the politicians. It has to do with, uh, you know, Trump in 2016 yep. and you know, calling us fake news. I'm like, sure, add that to the mix. But like at the same time, you know, one of the things that I try to go through is like, well, where in the media have we gone wrong and how can we improve what we're doing? And it does come against the business model, which is like there's, you know, same amount of eyeballs, more places for them to go. Yeah. And so, of course, we're going to try to churn up. And I wrote make a story piece in the spring 2020 that came out from the other side, which was, which was maybe we should have been more alarmist mm. in January and February. Um, and a lot of what we were doing was sort of repeating at the time was the the CDC argument, which this is this is like the flu, but the yeah. flu is worse. We worried be more worried with the flu. Um, it's 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 hard to get your head around. You worked in TV for a long time. Did you did you see those problems when you were working daily in TV, or is it something where once you were removed from TV, you could see it a little more clearly? When you're in TV and you're in those daily meetings and you get the weekly ratings reports, 
and especially at a place like CBS, which is in third place in its daily programming, right? Uh, in the morning and the evening. So like, what are the other guys doing? Like, how can we, you know, get people in here? Um, what is the what are the tried and true tactics graphically, visually, colors? I mean, literally, you sit there on TV and you're looking at like who the anchors are, who the reporters are, what they're covering, what, what they're, they're wearing, like, what they're wearing. I mean, I I came from a place at Fox where they had very strict rules as to what people are wearing, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a visual medium, so you're looking and you're part of this race to like well, how can we grab people's attention in a in a more compelling way to get here because we think what we're doing is best and you know we have a a business to run here once i'm out of it i think it was it was clearer for me uh, to see what was going on but frankly peter like once i started hearing directly from the audience again i mean the, the irony is i'm at cbs and at the time even news has 6 million plus people and i have little to no connection with the audience, minus a focus group that we put together once in a while where I'm watching them behind the mm -hmm. glass wall. Uh, uh, here, I'm hearing from people and I'm and I'm seeing the types of questions they're asking. And in some cases, I'm like, oh, oh, you have a good point. I can see where you're coming from on that. Or I can see why you think that based on your watching of the media. So, you know, I think that we could all, it, it, would, it would be helpful for all of us in this world to spend more time talking to the consumers of our content about the questions that they have. Uh, and it, I think it'll bring clarity to the things we can do to reconnect with them in a way. How much of, of TV versus digital is TV is passive? In a lot of cases, it's on a, it's on a screen that maybe you didn't even turn on. It's, it's in the waiting room or whatever, or you're just in the, you're an older person, you're in the habit of having it on versus digital you go seek out very often. How much do you think about that? I, I think about that a lot. And and I think that uh, one thing that we didn't quite get in the traditional media, and I, you know, gradually getting there is we need to utilize digital media uh, for all of its capabilities. You know, to, to the previous point, you know, I think that what we do a lot is just, again, take our content and put it out digitally and not utilize the fact that digitally we can, we can have that back and forth. We can have that exchange. Um, how do we do that in a more effective way? How do we bring our content um, to the audience and, and allow them to react to it, but also uh, allow them to help frame the conversations we're having, the issues that they care about, um, as opposed to just programming one direction to them. But I, you know, I think that we have these new tools at our disposal, and it would behoove us to think about them in in a way that you know doesn't continue the uh, what we've done for decades, for a century, where we're you know broadcasting via radio or broadcasting via television. It's a one way street, and and I think people frankly demand more these days. They demand more accountability from their government. They demand more accountability from their bosses, right? With the with the great quitting that we saw, and they're demanding more accountability from their media. Uh, linear TV is is in decline. Um, that's systemic. It's not going to change. Still throws off a lot of money. CNN was doing a billion dollars a year in profit uh, pre-licked, and and even with the the screw ups there, it's still going to throw off hundreds of millions of dollars. What can they do with that money today to sort of create a new lifeline? You know, it's interesting. I mean, you bring up the CNN example, right? Like, what is their new CNN plus CNN mm -hmm. plus plus? You know, I think that you know across the board. You know, I I watched it at, at CBS and was a part of it and building their streaming presence, right? NBC's done that. You know, I think the New York Times has been very strategic in buying The Athletic and finding a variety of ways to connect with the audience digitally and has had, a, a you know, I think a particularly good digital strategy, at least in the, in the past couple of years. Ultimately, the, the business issue they have is they make so much money off the traditional 30-second mm -hmm. ad, and they're just going to try to squeeze that for as long as humanly possible. Off the end and cable distribution fees. Correct. Again, those are both in decline. Yeah. But, you know, I often see that their answer is always, well, we're going to, like you said, we're going to take what we did on linear and we're going to move it to streaming because people like streaming. Or I was I was hearing very serious people a couple of years ago, we just got to bring it to mobile and that way people will consume it on mobile. Yeah. Does that format work in the future or do you just have to sort of toss the whole thing out and create an entirely new way of doing news? Well, it's a passive experience, right? So, I, you know, I think at least the numbers we saw at CBS when we created the 24-hour streaming channel is that we found people consuming it the same way, keeping it on all day in their waiting rooms, et cetera, via Roku and Apple TV and all the various streaming devices, right? At the same time, though, in terms of, you know, well, we need a 2 o'clock show and we need a 3 o'clock show and we need a 4 o'clock show. Does that need to exist in the same way in the future? 
you know, you can reimagine it. Don't replicate what made sense for Ted Turner in 1980 in the year 2023, 2024. I mean, maybe you're only coming up live on major breaking news events, but what you're really trying to do is break down issues, stories, et cetera, an individual on-demand video for people. I mean, take a look at, uh, you know, this is why I try to stay close to these platforms. Take a look at how people are consuming the news on on TikTok and on, and on Instagram and all these platforms and, and be responsive to that. Being responsive to that also means that, you know, if you're finding... Uh, your talent and your personalities and you're having them frame stories and structure stories in a way that is responsive to those. So you, it, it doesn't, it requires much more than just copying and pasting. It requires a, a rethink. It requires an understanding of how the audience is consuming things um, and being conducive to that. And I think, you know, that's why, whether it's the podcast, you know, like how much money should CNN be investing in, in podcasts, really? Uh, how much should they be investing in, in their various newsletters and the various social platforms? But I think it requires a kind of all of the above approach, but it requires a, a rethink as they look ahead here. Lots of media people listen to this podcast, um, people who run things. Uh, let's say one of them hears you and says, this guy's smart. I'm, I'm, I want him to come help fix my linear TV operation. Does that job interest you? You know, it's it's interesting. So one of the things I started to do out of CBS was consult for companies. So I've had a a, a handful of roles over the course of the past two years consulting for some larger media brands. I was involved in the effort to build Fox Weather, their streaming channel over at Fox, um, and a couple other media efforts. I'm continuing to consult. I'm continuing to work with various companies. And I, I think the reason why I do this, Peter, is I think that building and rebuilding the trust of the audience is so important. I love news. I am obsessed with good information. You know, the, one of the first things that triggered me at the beginning of COVID was my wife getting a text that said they were going to institute martial law and mm -hmm. close the bridges to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is not a thing. And this is going to create a crisis. So I'm doing this because I want to get good information out there. I want people to be able to reconnect with each other again. I want them to know that it's not just two extremes out there, that you can trust journalists even if some of them have lost your trust. That, you know, like like any profession out there, there are good ones among us and there are bad ones among us, but don't paint us with one brush. And if there are organizations out there looking to figure this out, I'm open ears and I'm, I'm game to help. Good for you for not locking yourself into something that would be embarrassing in a year or two if you had to if you had to change and pivot. Um, you, you keep your options open. That's good. Well, I, I to be honest with you, Peter, like – we're watching this media environment evolve. Even what I've seen in the past three years has changed so much. And so it's requiring, you know, a constant uh, reassessment every few months these days when you see what's happening out there and what the trends are. I hear you. You are Moshe Waninu. Um, did I butcher your name? No, did I you, get it? you got okay, it. Okay, good. I've been working it. on it. The platform is Mo News. Great yes. to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks again to Moshe. In a minute, we're going to hear from Jason Del Rey, my former coworker and my friend. Uh, but first, a word from a sponsor. My old friend Jason Del Rey is here. Jason is the best retail, commerce, e-commerce reporter I know. Awesome human being. He's written a book. It's great. It's called Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. Welcome back, Jason. What's up, Peter? Thank you for coming in. It's your big launch day. I'm feeling good. Got a lot of makeup on okay. and uh, trying to make it through. Earlier this morning, Joe Kiernan on CNBC wanted to know if you related to Lana Del Rey. He did ask me that. I did not realize we were still on. Then I realized we were still on. And I told him, it's a fake name. I guess that's called a stage name. So you are related to Lana Del Rey? <laughs> it would make my life a little easier when all the people hop into my Twitter DMs and get mad at me for my Del Rey Twitter <laughs> handle. I would say, no, she told me it's okay. I'm her first cousin. But in fact, I think her name's something like Elizabeth Grant or... <laughs> This is, um, this is why we have you on the podcast, to, <laughs> to resolve all the important questions. Uh, you wrote a book about Amazon and Walmart. You covered Amazon for years at All Things Digital and then Recode sitting next to me. Why did you decide to write a book about Amazon and Walmart duking it out? Yeah, I mean, I've covered both for, for a decade. Wal Walmart more so uh, since they acquired Jet in 2016. And I just feel like we examine each company's sort of – in a vacuum often. And I grew to learn over the years how many of their strategies and actions and motivations were influenced by the other. And while there's been some great books about Amazon written, obviously Brad Stone's 
couple of good ones about Walmart, but way back in like the early 2000s, I had not read one that had gone deep inside both companies' story and chronicled how Walmart's tried to reinvent itself. Basically, it's it's on one hand, a case study of maybe the greatest case of the innovator's dilemma we've seen in the last couple of decades. That's Walmart saying, we own retail in America, in the world, but we're not online. How do we build up an online business? And do we cannibalize, cut into our existing business to do that? Exactly. You know, where our super centers are cash mach machines, they are also profit machines. And this e-commerce thing is very expensive. We don't know. For a long time, they were like, do we really need to build a big business here? And eventually decided that their best bet uh, was to acquire talent and expertise in that space. And and like I referenced a bit earlier, they spent you know over $3 billion to buy a company called Jet. So you, you detail like you know, Amazon is poaching Walmart employees. I think Walmart eventually poaches Amazon employees. There's scenes where the Amazon and Walmart employees are literally just looking at screens, seeing who's pricing <laughs> stuff to the various penny and then like undercutting them. Was it always viewed by both companies as a pitched battle? Was Amazon always going after Walmart? Was Walmart always looking at Amazon as if they were a, a real core problem? So the short answer is – Yes, but at different points, one company has cared more than the other. So talk to Amazon executives over the years, many, many of them, and they would say, for our first 10, 15 years, we were extremely fearful that if Walmart took advantage of their key advantage, which was a super center within whatever, 90% of the population. You can tell you've been doing retail reporting. Super center is what we call a store, right? <laughs> Supercenter is Walmart's largest store. Big ass store. Okay. Big ass store that sells just about, you know, before the- oh, You can also tell that I'm a New Yorker who's not, <laughs> who's been in a Walmart like four times in my life. Uh, I, I'm a New Jersey resident now. We have two Walmarts within 10 miles of us. So some practice here. So Supercenter is their biggest, yeah, biggest store that before the everything store of Amazon was seen as sort of the everything store, right? You could do any, everything there, pharmacy, shop, groceries. And uh, what was my point here? And and so Amazon feared that if Walmart used delivery out of that store or did something that's now common, which is order online, pick up at store, mm -hmm. that they could really be. And Amazon's Amazon. like, we're grown. We we want to. It's that standard net. The Netflix, like, we want to become HBO before they become us, faster Correct. than they become us. And so Amazon very clearly was like, Walmart, if they want to, can really kick the crap out of us just by sort of figuring it out, figuring out how to sell this stuff online. They already have the retail network, the network that we have yet to build out. Exactly. And they waited and waited and waited. And yes, Walmart dabbled here and there and had an online unit out of Silicon Valley and largely just failed for a variety of reasons, lack of focus, culture clashes, profits versus losses, all of that. And so Finally, in the last decade under Walmart's new CEO, Doug McMillan, who I went down to Bentonville and, and interviewed for this book, they said, wow, Amazon can actually be, may actually be an existential threat for us. Like we need to get our crap together. And do the people who run both companies imagine a future where one of them is victorious or is there a version of the go, no one company is going to own retail? You know, they can both cut into each other's margins, make it more difficult for them. But it's not like, again, I'm referencing Netflix, where Netflix couldn't exist if Blockbuster still existed. Um, it had to kill Blockbuster in order to get to where it was. Does one of these companies have to lose or in the end, can they be two giant pillars of retail? At the time that Doug McMillan took over as CEO of Walmart in 2014, whether he believed it or not, he was telling executives internally, even his board, that Amazon was in fact an existential threat. If we don't move faster, really cut into this giant market share gap that there was online, we may not exist a couple of decades from now. So I think he believed it. And um, we've seen some progress over the years of Walmart getting more digital savvy. And you know, I think there was a world in which they continued to fail in this space, and they look back, and their market share is, you know, one percent, and they're in a lot of trouble in online retail. You mentioned a company called Jet a couple times. <laughs> yeah. um, found a, is it Mark Laurie? Correct. Okay, so 
big deal in your world, and I paid attention to it. Um, but I think unless you're reading all of Jason Del Rey's stories and some stories in the journal, you may never have heard of Jet or Mark Laurie. Who is Mark Laurie? Why is he important to retail? Why is he important? He's a major character in your book. Other than a guy that, like me, is also from both Staten Island and New Jersey, he now uh, owns the Timberwolves. Now owns the Timberwolves with A Rod. Uh, he is a longtime entrepreneur. He first made a fortune by starting and then selling diapers.com and its parent company, Quidzy, to Amazon. Uh, Walmart actually wanted that company. There was a battle there. Left Amazon, may or may not have been working on jet.com while he was still at Amazon and uh, launched this company called Jet.com. The original idea, Costco Online essentially, pay a membership fee, get savings, and uh, maybe you'll wait a little longer than Amazon Prime, but you'll get such big savings that it'll be worth it. Cheaper Amazon. Cheaper Amazon. Before they launched to the public, they cut the membership fee, and it kind of became like you would get discounts if you the more products you ordered you'd get bigger discounts also if you paid for like with a debit card instead of a credit card they were trying to as he you know he would say sh they'd strip costs out of did logistics they, did they really and, think they were going to beat amazon or was the idea like cuz you don't be number 2 say, the idea two, was yeah. the idea was the amazon's huge two. like you but being number 2 to amazon is an incredibly powerful thing let's go do that exactly and that that was the plan and they spent I forget what the number was, um, hundreds of millions of dollars largely on marketing, uh, was not really working. But Walmart was at a point where they were pretty desperate and mm -hmm. sort of found each other at the right time and ended up you know, paying handsomely for essentially Mark Laurie and his team. It's there, a $3.3 billion acquire. I don't think you used that word in there, but that's my memory was that was, it wasn't like we all knew that jet.com was Again, we being the 20 people who are paying attention to this, but um, that Jet.com was a failure. I would say the retail industry at large, and I know we, and some in the media, I think we're paying a lot of attention because because it was this guy who was trying to get back yep. at Amazon. Yep. Fair and uh, But yeah, it was it was largely an aqua hire. I, I will say there, there was some technology there at Jet, and there was this idea that um, without boring everyone, they could take some of that technology and how it helped customers save mm -hmm. and port that onto walmart.com. They talked about it at Walmart for years. I write in my book, while they were talking about it, didn't really seem feasible it would ever happen, and and it really didn't. And so they plug, the idea is we're going to plug Mark Laurie's technology and then Mark Laurie himself into Walmart. They're going to help us. Just accelerate, bring put you know, accelerate our digital stuff. Bring us yep. to eleven. We can't do it internally. We need this. We have a bad guy. reputation. We can't hire well yeah. in digital. Yep, all uh, of that. I'm going to spoiler alert here, but Mark Laurie no longer works at Walmart. <laughs> That's correct. Um, went and bought a bunch of companies. There was a big spending spree. Bought companies like I think Modcloth and Bonobos, and they were going to like generate all. It was this weird moment where. Walmart was buying all these kind of hip e-commerce companies. Yeah, Those all so got shut down or folded. He's correct. gone. Why Why didn't it work at Walmart? Yeah. So I, people ask me if that deal was a success or not. And the answer you may not like is I think it depends on definition of success. Yeah. Did if, – if, he changed the narrative of Walmart from like really a backward digital company to something, you know, something that was at least competitive with most other retailers, able to hire pretty good talent um, and grow the top line of the digital business. The point that Walmart, you know, rewarded Walmart, uh, sorry, Wall Street rewarded Walmart with, you know, larger uh, valuation. Uh, pretty successful. But the other stuff, like the acquisition strategy, a lot of that didn't work couple of reasons. One is executive team inside Bentonville, Walmart's headquarters, were looking at this stuff and we're just like, when are we going to see a profit? They kept missing internal numbers. Some we run stores for a living. We make profits for a living. Yes. You're the internet guy who's going to come here and show us how it's done. But all week, and by the way, we've seen this story play out in media and a lot of other industries as well. But as far as we can tell, all you do is burn money. Yeah. And Mark didn't help himself. I think he once quipped publicly that um, Greg makes the money. Greg was the head of – Greg Foran was the head of the U.S. stores business and I spend the money or something like that. And that's really how it played out. Um, executives I spoke to said 
not only did they miss numbers internally, sometimes it seemed like they weren't, they didn't know they were about to miss big numbers. And so that was, you know, over time lost credibility uh, for that reason. Um, and eventually, you know, he was never going to last there a super long time. I think he had a five-year deal uh, after jet acquisition, which is long. I think he lasted about four, but about a year in, you know, his friends and colleagues, you know, I have a scene where they're at a party and they're basically betting how long he's going to last. And and now he's an NBA team owner. That's what happens when they pay you personally $500 million plus a bunch of stock. You can buy an NBA team or at least invest in one with A-Rod. One of the things you detail in the story is, you know, the e-commerce stuff that did work when Laurie was there wasn't Laurie's stuff. It was the grocery business, either delivery or pickup. And, and because Walmart had these groceries in the stores. And so that actually was working. No thanks to him. Amazon has been going after groceries forever, yep. Whole Foods, a bunch of other projects. It does not seem like they have ever cracked it. Nope. Is there something structural about Amazon, the company or about its management that makes it impossible for them to figure out the grocery business? I think there was some arrogance that it wouldn't be as hard as it is early on. And I saw the Whole Foods acquisition back then as sort of waving the white flag, at, like, okay, this this shit's kind of hard and uh, we need some help. I am not a regular Whole Foods customer. I believe you are. Kind of. What would you say about the experience today versus can you remember what it was like shopping in there five, six years? I didn't pre go that often. And I actually started using them a lot more because there was free delivery and they had good produce. And then they stopped giving me the good produce. They made me go from a warehouse that was not the good produce. Remember that. And then they started charging me 10 bucks. And so now I rarely use them. So it has not been a success. I think they've been underwhelmed with what, you know, the results and what they've tried to do, you know, at the same time is build their own sort of mass grocer. And that's Amazon Fresh. There's, you know, a couple dozen of these stores the differentiation was supposed to be like the walkout, just walkout technology. You don't have to pay. So the scanners in the ceiling. Yeah, cameras and scanners. And then in some stores, they had these carts where the cart would scan your stuff mm -hmm. so you could just walk out. And when I started hearing from Amazon executives who loved the company that like, what the heck are we doing here? Like, is this real? Maybe there's a small segment of the population that'll go there just for that. But if the prices aren't good and we're out of stock and like, the actual shopping experience sucks, you know, this can't be a differentiator. And so they basically put it, hit a pause, Andy Jassy, new CEO, hit a pause on that expansion and they're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I, I, I miss you for many reasons, um, but I love being able to turn to you and go, what's going on with Amazon or Whole Foods? Or I got a question about this and you were on top of it. And my perception, specifically maybe in the last six months or so, Andy Jassy's just looked at Amazon and said, we're going to stop a lot of these projects. And it seems like a recurring theme is all the stuff where we try to have stores that people walk into one way. And they've done a million kinds of stores. There was an actual Amazon bookstore. There was an Amazon store that only had like five-star products. Four-star. Four-star, sorry. Called four-star. Um, and they just said, now, so are they giving up on the idea that they are going to run physical stores that you are going to visit and just say, listen, what we do well is we run a website and we are good at logistics and we will deliver stuff to you? I don't think they're giving up. I do think they're going to make a really hard play into trying to, you know, be a technology company selling their – licensing their tech such as this just walk out stuff to other retailers. I, I don't know how successful they're going to be, how much business others are going to want to do with them. But I think they really feel that they need some type of physical presence. Shipping fees, labor fees all increasing, like having a place where customers can pick up or return I think matters to them. They've just been very unsuccessful to date. They hired – a big uh, executive from a UK grocer, Tes Tesco, and he's been there, I'm going to blank on how long, but not too long. And so I think they're going to keep at it, but Jassy definitely pulled in the reins on a lot of businesses, Alexa. And what what's unclear to me right now, I think this is a big inflection point at the company. Are they just going to be a mature company now that's, you know, lower growth and looking at profits. And that's just the natural evolution. In Bezos speak, day two is what he would call this phase. 
Or is this just a reset and they're going to invest heavily in, in more areas to come, such as healthcare, which I, which I write about a bit in the book as well? Yeah, you do cover you cover so much in this thing. You don't cover the thing that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, what's called retail media. Yeah, I could tell you why, but sure. So first of all, explain what retail media is. Yeah, retail media essentially um, buying ads on a retailer's website is how I think of it. Those can come in all sorts of formats, sponsored products, video ads. Mm-hmm. Um, and this existed before online. You just pay for an end cap or – placement in a store. If you want to be on a certain level of the store, you pay the store. You pay, you're basically paying rent to have your product placed at a store. And that's a long, ongoing business and has now moved online. It benefits both Amazon and Walmart apparently is minting money from this right now. So Walmart, yeah, they actually hired a former Amazon ad exec, Seth DeWare, who now leads their advertising, this retail media business, but also their Amazon Prime rival or wannabe called Walmart Plus. And yeah, it's extremely profitable business. I think at Amazon, it has better gross margins than AWS, which is a very profitable business. I mean, it's uh, charging online rent was not a better business, right? And reason I didn't get to cover in this book, it was the competition between the two in the space. I mean, Walmart has just started building it up in the last year or two, so there's not much of a competition yet. But I was at an event a few weeks ago, and Amazon was a big sponsor, and Walmart was a big sponsor. The whole event was retail media. And, you know, the sell to me when I ask about consumer, like, is the consumer experience better is, well, it's a way for us to curate, you know, the everything store. Yeah. To me, it's just outsourcing in a lot of ways, the curation of what's become a really messy marketplace to someone willing to pay for that. Um, I'm not convinced it's better for me and you, but it is a super profitable business and they are both investing heavily. It seems like the inshittification, I thought someone's coined that word, um, of just online and generally, like everyone's got a complaint about, you go to Google, it's all sponsored links. And on my phone, I was shopping for something last night on Amazon and they say sponsored. You have to look pretty closely to see yeah, that there's it's sponsored. All sorts, yeah, and it's most of the results are sponsored. I'm like, you know, I don't know that it matters that much to me, but it doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel great. I think when you notice that said, this is my uh, to be fair paragraph. To be fair, I have talked to small merchants on Amazon or Walmart that are like, listen, I think I have a great product. It's really hard to get noticed. Like without this. I might not have a shot. Mm-hmm. And so um, the challenge is, you know, that's not the only fee these marketplaces are charging, right? There's warehousing fee, customer service fee, listing fee. And uh, the question is, are they just charging this because they can? Or is there a real, is it really good for the small businesses selling on the site? You've started this beginning of the pandemic? That's correct. So yeah. we're three years in. Yep. Are you happy you wrote a book? You always told me, don't write a book. And many times during this process, I was like, damn, should have listened to Peter. Um, now that you're actually holding it and uh, the bad reviews haven't published yet, so maybe you know, maybe they're not coming, I'm, I'm pretty happy I did. We could get my wife and my two kids on next time and we could ask them if they're happy okay, though. Okay, that's part two. Jason Delray, great to see you. Peter, always a pleasure, bud. Thanks again to Jason. Awesome to see him. Thanks again to Moshe. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.